welcome. Um, as always, it's great to be with you, great to be, uh, have the chance to preach the word to you this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series on Genesis today. Uh, we are nearing the end. Uh, for the past several weeks, we've been looking at uh, the first three chapters of Genesis, and we began by looking at the creation account, uh, this amazing picture of life and blessing and goodness. Uh, but last week, we began the challenging task of talking about sin. We started to explore uh, Genesis chapter 3 and this very first sin, Adam and Eve eating from the fruit of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is a difficult topic, right? Sin can be something that's hard to acknowledge and address, something we might not really want to think or, or deal with. Uh, this past week, as I was preparing this message, um, I kept encountering this kind of small but annoying problem. Uh, first, a little bit of backstory. Uh, I often do uh, some of my message prep while I'm out running. So I'll go out for a run, I'll put on some worship music, and I'll just kind of try to like process through uh, the message, process through scripture as I'm out there. And so, you know, if I'm running and I have an idea or like an illustration comes to mind, I'll, I'll pull out my phone, open up my notes app, and I'll kind of, you know, just jot down some thoughts, jot, jot down some notes. And so this past week, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, kind of doing this, and I have like maybe two or three pages worth of notes in my notes app. But what kept happening was every single time I wrote the word sin, it would automatically autocorrect to sun, right, S-U-N. And it makes sense. You look at your keyboard, S and, or I and you are, are next to each other. But every time, like every single time, I, you know, it's a message on sin, so I probably typed it a hundred times. And every time, it never changed, it would autocorrect to sun. Now, this is annoying. We've all been through that, right? You type it, and it autocorrects. You delete, and you type it again, and it autocorrects again. It's like, ugh! But it's even more annoying when you're trying to do this as you're running, and like, you know, you know, and then I'd have to stop, and I'd, I'd lose my, you know, my pace, and it's just, it's just really frustrating. Now, at some point, I just gave up, and so my notes are basically just full of thoughts about the sun and how the sun is really bad for you. So, um, now I bring this up because uh, obviously it was annoying, but I, I actually at some point started to realize, you know, it's kind of ironic. Uh, we live in a culture doesn't want to think about sin, doesn't want to talk about sin. We don't like dwelling on sin. And it was almost like my notes app was telling me, like, no, 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 no. You don't want to talk about sin. You don't want to go there. Why don't you talk about something more bright and positive, like the sun? You should talk about that in your message. And not only is it kind of funny, but it's also a reminder, right, that talking about sin, it does require some intentionality. We have to work a little bit to, to really go there, to fight against this, this natural inclination we have to say, it's fine. Everything's fine. I, I, I'm good. It's not that big of a deal. And, and really to address it. And I want to be really clear from the outset. The goal of talking about sin, the, the goal of, of really taking it seriously, is not to make you feel guilty. It's not to make you feel bad about yourself. It's not to place this burden on you. But ultimately, what we want to see is that sin is a real problem that we have to address. And that's going to be our focus this morning, uh, this, this impact, this effect of sin in our lives. Now, if you remember last week, uh, we talked about the nature of sin. 
Pastor Abe did a great job talking about this idea of rebellion. That sin ultimately is about us wanting to be our own masters, to decide selfishly what's best for us. And so we really kind of got an idea of what sin is. But this morning, as we continue on our passage in Genesis 3, we want to really kind of hone in on what sin does. And so we're going to look at the fallout from Adam and Eve's sin and, and see what sin does to us, our world, and to God. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And we're basically going to pick up right where we left off last week. And we'll start right in verse 6 as kind of this initial sin, this original sin takes place. And we'll see how everything changes. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I think one of the things that we have to understand when we read this passage is to recognize that it's really written as a tragedy, right? The entire narrative is framed to show us the kind of loss and devastation that's taken place in us and in our world. I think in many ways, these verses are a little bit like looking at the aftermath of a natural disaster. 
And I think, right, we've all experienced this, you know, turning on the news or opening up Twitter or however, you know, you consume, consume your media. But looking and seeing, right, the horrible effects of a hurricane or a tsunami or a wildfire. And it's jarring, right? We, we look in horror at the rubble, the loss of life and property, possessions, memories. And we're able to see very clearly and reflect on what has been taken. Uh, I'm always struck by this one particular feature uh, you know, on, on a news website like CNN.com. And I'm sure you've seen something like this before. But you know, there's basically like a, a, an interactive picture. And on one side of the picture, you have this kind of top-down shot of an area before the disaster. right? So it's a normal city or town. And you can see the houses and the trees and everything looks normal. On the other side of the picture, you have of course, the aftermath of the disaster, and everything's kind of burned down or broken down or in rubble, and there's kind of a, a, a slider in the middle of the picture, and you can slide it back and forth, right? And you can see, you can go from perfectly normal, and, and as you slide across, you see this kind of gradual unfolding of destruction. And there's this really immediate contrast between what was and what now is. And in a way, I, I think this is what Genesis 3 is doing. It's a gradual unfolding of this disaster that is sin. A gradual unfolding of the destruction of sin. And I think it's probably most like uh, one particular natural disaster, the, the most, probably the most recent one, these wildfires uh, on Maui. And, you know, obviously all natural disasters are sad, and, and, and they're all bad in their own way. But I think there was something... That was just kind of extra hard about this one, right? Because it was this beautiful paradise, this place that we all think, oh, I'd love to go there. And it's just a place of peace and enjoyment and happiness and beauty had been taken away. And this, I think, really is the closest parallel to Genesis 3, right? This sin, this destructive force has brought chaos and disorder and loss and destruction to something that is supposed to be really, really good. And it might be tempting, I think, as, as we talked about, to just kind of look away and, and distract ourselves and say, well, we don't really need to focus on Genesis 3. Let's, let's move on to something more positive. But Scripture, I think, really invites us to sit with this. The narrative unfolds slowly in such a way that we're meant to reflect on what's happening, what this means uh, for uh, Adam and Eve, but especially for ourselves. And so what I want to do this morning is I, I just kind of want to walk through this passage, walk across this landscape, and, and take note of three changes or three points of contrast between the perfect world that was and uh, the destruction that's taken place. So let's start here. Uh, first thing is that sin disrupts our relationship with God. Now this is the most important, immediate, probably obvious aspect of sin's destructive capacity. And when you think about the, the larger story of creation, what we've been talking about for the last several weeks, it becomes clear that this is the highlight of this kind of Genesis 3 tragedy. And let's go back for a second to Genesis 1 and 2, what we've been talking about, right? This picture of life in the garden. Now, there's a lot of good things about it, right? Like God makes everything, this, this world of peace and beauty and blessing and goodness, and he places man and woman in the garden to enjoy all of it. 
But what's clear as, as Genesis 1 and 2 unfold is that this place isn't just paradise, it is sacred space. It's meant to remind us of the tabernacle and the temple, this place where God dwells with his people. And so for ancient Israelites, this was the heart of paradise. When they thought about what made Eden really good, what made it something to long for, it wasn't the beautiful trees, it wasn't even the abundant food and these, these amazing rivers full of fresh, clean water. It wasn't the gold and onyx and precious gemstones. What made the garden so good was getting to be in God's presence, to hear him, to, to sit with him, to walk with him, to be loved by him, accepted by him, and known by the creator of the universe. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I got a chance to go to uh, a Rams game at SoFi Stadium. This is my first time being to SoFi, and actually my first game time going to a professional football game. And it was awesome. I was so impressed by SoFi and the whole experience. Right? The stadium is beautiful. The, seats, the food is actually pretty good. The seats are great. And the Rams won. This was before Matt Stafford got hurt, so we were still good. And it was a really fun game to watch. But the best part of the day bar none, wasn't even close, was the fact that I was there with my son, Grayson, that we got to enjoy it together, right? Setting aside, like, everything else pales in comparison to just the joy of sitting next to my son and watching a football game, right? I looked over, and I could see just the joy in his eyes when Cooper Cup caught a touchdown, and he's got his Cooper Cup jersey, and he's like, yeah, let's go, and, and just enjoying that together is better than anything. One of my favorite days in my whole life. And what made it good was that relationship. And this is really the heart of life in the garden. Just the relationship, getting to be in the presence of God. And the very first thing that happens after Adam and Eve sin, the very first thing we notice is the way this relationship has become tainted. Immediately it's disrupted. See, Scripture tells us that right after they eat the fruit, their eyes are open and they become aware that they're naked. They cover themselves with fig leaves. God comes looking for them. He's, he's calling out to them, hey, where are you? And they go hide in the trees. They, they, they run from God. Now, these are pretty simple, basic actions, but it's a powerful picture of loss, of how different the relationship is, right? This isn't intimacy. This isn't trust. This isn't perfect love and acceptance. What we see here is the symptoms of anxiety, fear, and shame, and the way it changes the relationship. I thought this was really interesting. Scholar John Salehammer points out this really interesting detail from the text, that Adam and Eve, when they go hide, they go hide specifically amongst the trees of the garden. And he points out that these trees have just kind of a special meaning, right? The trees, what do they represent in Genesis 1 and 2? God's good abundance, this gift of fruit and life and enjoyment. The trees represent this relationship and, and what God gives to his people. But in Genesis 3, after sin, the trees come to represent this shame. They become a place of rebellion. It's where Adam and Eve go to hide. See, in so many ways... In this one moment, we see how everything changes. And this is the most devastating loss in Genesis 3. 
Even if you take away everything else, if, if Adam and Eve could have stayed in the garden, if nothing else had changed, at the end of the day, everything had already changed. They were never going to experience the kind of peace and love and perfect acceptance, the kind of joy and blessing because of their decision. Now let's continue on our story. We come to the second piece of sin's destructiveness, that sin distorts our identity and purpose. And as the narrative continues, we come to what I think is probably the most challenging part of this passage. God confronts Adam and Eve, and he ultimately uh, reveals the consequences of sin for the serpent, and for Eve, and for Adam. The serpent is cursed to crawl on its belly and eat dust. Eve is cursed with painful labor and childbearing. She's to be ruled over by her husband. Adam is punished by uh, having to toil and labor for food. This whole process of uh, growing is now going to be filled with, with toil and sweat and hardship. And I'm going to be honest, I, I don't know if this is true for you, but I've always found this passage to be a little bit strange. Like, I don't want to, like, doubt God's wisdom or God's kind of decision about how he does punishments, but uh, it, it just feels kind of off and arbitrary. It actually reminds me of these books that my mom used to read me as a kid called Just So Stories. Do you guys, do you guys remember these? Well, I mean, they're basically, they're a bunch of kind of silly stories about how things came to be the way they are, like how the leopard got its spots, how the elephant got its trunk, how the camel got its hump. I don't remember anything about the stories, but they were just kind of fun. And I've always felt like Genesis 3, like, had that vibe. Like, hey, this is how, you know, things came to be. This is why childbearing is so painful. This is why the snake slithers on its belly. This is why... Work is hard. See, I think of all the things that could have happened because of sin, these consequences feel kind of random, right? Like, hey, you just committed the most serious infraction, the most significant sin of all time. And so for Eve, it's going to hurt when you have babies. And Adam, it's going to be hard to grow crops now. And I'm going to give you thorns and thistles, and they'll, they'll poke your fingers. And you know, there's a part of this that doesn't totally seem right. It feels kind of arbitrary and maybe a little bit cruel. But there's more going on here. These are clearly not just so stories. And it's important that we realize that this is not arbitrary punishment. This isn't God thinking about, hmm, how shall I punish them? How shall I make life hard for them? How shall I make them feel bad for what they've done? Instead, what we see is God revealing the consequence of sin. And these things aren't arbitrary, but instead they are the ways that sin affects the very blessings he's provided of identity and purpose. Now again, let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Right? God creates man and woman, places them in the garden. He says, you are going to bear my image. You're going to be image bearers. You're going to be created in the image of God to reflect his goodness to all of creation. And then he proceeds to kind of explain some of the, the aspects of this image bearing, right? To be fruitful and increase in number, to rule and subdue, to steward uh, all of creation, all, all of nature. And this is kind of who we were meant to be, right? Like we're placed in the garden. This is our identity. This is our purpose. This brings us life. 
and sin disrupts and damages these specific blessings. Right? For the woman, the effect of sin is on childbirth and marriage. Now, just to be clear, this is not to say that this is woman's only purpose in creation or that the only value is for a woman is to be a mother and wife. But the point here, right, is that God has blessed both woman and man with the ability to experience relationship and family, right? Filling the earth, increasing in number, is a gift. It's part of what we were made to do. And so for women, this was a tremendous source of joy and privilege. It is a way of blessing. And right in the aftermath of the fall, it is that gift in particular that is now marred by pain and struggle. The implications of, of these words here is that it's not just physical pain, but it's all of the anxiety and stress that, that come with pregnancy and labor and child rearing as death and sin are introduced into this process. Right? And we should know that the blessing isn't removed. God doesn't say, hey, you don't get to do this anymore. But he reveals the brokenness that sin has introduced into this place of blessing. The same is true for man, right? Think about the most, probably the most tangible, clear blessing in creation is this land, right? The man is given the land, the trees, the crops, fruit, all of these good green things to eat. And he's tasked with stewarding the garden and caring for it. And, and before the fall, you know, it's just easy, right? Like the, the, the ground just grows with seed and, and fruit and all this good stuff according to its kind. Work is good, it's fun, it's successful, it's fulfilling, but after sin, the ground is cursed. Work becomes hard. It becomes toil and labor. Once again, it's not an arbitrary punishment. God is showing them, hey, this is what's going to happen now that you have rejected Eden. You have rejected my rule. You have rejected this place of blessing that I've given you. And life outside of this, man, it's, it's hard. It's different. Uh, one more interesting effect of the fall that I don't think we always notice is, is the way it's impacted the relationship between Adam and Eve, between husband and wife. And in Genesis 2, right, one more thing that we see before the fall is God creates a partnership between man and woman, the covenant of marriage. And one of the things we have to realize is that marriage isn't just about uh, their own fulfillment. It wasn't just like, hey, let me give you a partner so that you can be a couple and live happily ever after, so that you can have someone to watch Netflix with and go out on dates with and have a good time. Ultimately, this relationship was meant to help them in their identity and purpose of, of being image bearers. Right? Ultimately, for, for all of us, this is true for all of us, marriage isn't just let's be happy. It's let's love and, and serve God. Ultimately, this reflects the community of God the way God loves and upholds and affirms and sacrifices in relationship within the Trinity. And so in marriage, Adam and Eve can go out into the world and reflect the love and joy and community of God and creation. And so what happens after the fall is important, right? Because instead of perfect love, perfect acceptance, perfect community, what's the first thing that happens between Adam and Eve, right? Blame. She did it. She made me eat the fruit. This is the most relatable part of Genesis 3 for all of us, men and women. It was her fault. It was his fault. But again, once again, this relationship, this good gift from God 
has become a source of trouble. And really, if you look volume-wise, this is really kind of the, the bigger part of Genesis 3, is looking at the way these blessings, who we were cre- created to be, what we were meant to experience as we imaged God, how those things are slowly distorted. And this leads us to the final aspect of sin's destructiveness, is that sin derails God's kingdom project. See, this loss of relationship and identity has consequences not just for Adam and Eve, but for creation and for God himself. It's not just something that happens to them. It affects the whole world. Again, as image bearers, Adam and Eve were meant to bring God's reign and rule and goodness everywhere. Uh, Jeremy Treat describes the kingdom project this way. Eden was a beautiful garden with order and harmony, while the rest of the world was wild and untamed. The world was good, but it was created with potential, full of resources that needed to be cultivated. Genesis 1 and 2 presents us not with a final product, but with an unfinished product. Project. Adam and Eve were called to Edenize the world. Right? So if Adam and Eve fulfilled this Genesis 1 and 2 calling, they would go out and bring blessing, bring God's goodness and order and peace to a world that hadn't experienced that fully. And so Adam and Eve's sin didn't just affect them, didn't just affect their relationship with God. It affected every living creature, every tree, every landscape, everything that existed in the rest of the created world. Treat continues, Adam and Eve were originally sent out to spread the blessing of God's kingdom throughout the world, but instead they were banished and ended up spreading the curse of human sin to the ends of the earth. Now, this is one last important piece about the destructiveness of sin, and we see this very clearly in our lives, that it's not just us, right? Sin doesn't just have consequences for me and my relationship with God, but it affects others. It affects the people around me. It affects my family. It affects my community. It affects the natural world. It affects, ultimately, government. We see throughout Scripture the way sin affects disease and sickness. And ultimately, what we share, what we spread is sin and destruction instead of blessing. And so as we kind of take all three of those things, as as we conclude this this survey of the landscape of Genesis 3, we have this, this picture of what sin does. And it's pretty comprehensive, right? Relationship, identity, purpose, this larger kingdom vision for creation. Really, it's almost as if every good thing from Genesis 1 and 2 has been lost or tainted or broken in some way. Now, what does this mean? Uh, On on one hand, obviously, this this ultimately should point us to the hope of the gospel. Uh, And we're going to talk way more about this next week. I don't want to step on Pastor Eric's toes. But we never want to talk about sin outside of the context of Jesus' saving work of redemption. Right? So we can still have confidence and hope in light of sin because Jesus came specifically to deal with this problem. Right? Jesus came to pay for the penalty of sin so that we wouldn't be punished, but also he came to redeem the brokenness of sin, to bring us back into relationship, identity, purpose, and to restore God's kingdom vision for the world around us. And that's good news. We want to be hopeful about what God is doing in our lives. But at the same time, 
uh, we live in this tension. Because even though that is what God is doing and we can be certain of it and we can hope in it, the reality is now on this side of heaven, we still feel the effects of sin. Every single day in our lives, in our families, in our relationships, at work. This Genesis 3 picture affects our lives in serious ways. And one of the things that's, that's challenging is giving this the appropriate amount of weight to see the cost of sin, to own it, to recognize it, and to deal with it. And I, and I think this is hard, especially in the, the culture that we live in. I think for many of us, right, if you've grown up in church or if you've spent any time in the Bible or at church, you, you kind of know implicitly that sin is a problem. You've heard it talked about. You've probably heard lots of sermons on it. You've maybe wrestled with it and struggled with it. But I do think sometimes we forget or miss just how much sin hurts us just how damaging it is, right? That it's more than just bad because God says so. It's bad because it is destructive. I think we can forget all these little sins and big sins that we commit, that they do this same kind of damage as we see in Genesis 3, things like greed or unkindness or lust or gossip or impatience or material materialism, all these things, we can think about the way they affect our relationship with God, our identity, our purpose, what God is doing in us and through us in the world around us. And so I think this leads us at times to have a casual attitude about sin. Maybe not in our heads, but in reality. We think maybe sin isn't actually that destructive. Because we look at our lives and really if we're honest, sin doesn't affect a lot of the things we really care about that much, right? We can still sin and make money. Sometimes sinning helps us make more money. We can still sin and be happy. Sometimes we think sin brings us more happiness. We can sin and be comfortable. We can sin and, you know, have, have kids who are successful and go to good schools and, and go to great colleges. And so when someone says, hey, sin is really bad, sin will mess up your life, inside you might think to yourself, well, does it really? Is it really that bad? And what we miss is the loss of the things that, that really matter. One of the things that sin does is not only does it kind of destroy and taint and distort relationship, blessing, identity, purpose, but it also kind of makes us forget that those are the things that really matter. And so we need to find a way in our lives to be able to deal with sin, to address it, to take sin seriously without going to a place of, of, of guilt and, and, and burden and shame, just feeling bad about ourselves, beating ourselves up all the time, beating each other up all the time. We don't want to become a sin management culture, but we do have to take sin seriously. And so I want to wrap up this message by inviting you to a simple but powerful practice. And 
look, at the end of the day, there, there's no simple, clear ways or no simple, easy ways to deal with sin. But this week, I was spending a lot of time really thinking about this message and praying through it. I was struggling to figure out, how, how does this message end? Where do we go from here? Pastor Eric gets to talk about hope next week. So what do I do? We just sit here with all this brokenness and sadness and destruction. But as I was thinking about it, I felt like God was just kind of placed a, a word, a practice on my heart, something that we really don't talk about or think about very much, but it's essential to how Jesus and the prophets approach sin. And in Matthew 5, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus says, hey, mourning is a kingdom practice. Mourning is a practice that brings joy and blessing and life. Mourning is one of the key ways. It's only a handful of things that Jesus says here in the Beatitudes. It's one of the key ways that we participate in God's mission is we mourn. Now, when we hear the word mourning, I, you know, we think about sadness over a tragedy, most often the loss of a loved one. But in Scripture, mourning is most often used to communicate sadness or sorrow over sin, a sense of anguish and brokenness over one's own sin or the sins of one's community or especially the effects of sin uh, in the world around us. And for Jesus and the prophets, this is the practice that captured this idea of taking sin seriously, is to mourn. And so when I say we should mourn, I don't mean this has to look a specific way. It doesn't mean you have to like spend your time weeping or come in sackcloth and ashes or fast for 40 days and 40 nights. It doesn't have to particularly look that way. But the idea behind mourning is to recognize that repentance ultimately is something that we feel very deeply. Something that first begins with a genuine sense of brokenness. Right? We, we all have this idea of repentance and confession, right? We come to God and we say, God, I'm, I'm sorry for this. But it's not just, God, I, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Will you wipe the slate clean so I don't feel this guilt anymore? Mourning and true repentance recognizes the weight of sin. It reflects on sin. It considers the brokenness that sin has brought. And it feels real sorrow. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Kristen uh, came in and gave an amazing uh, guest message for us. And she talks about this idea of the image of God and bearing God's image. And one of the things that she just kind of tacked on there at the end was talking about the image of God in the context of parenting, of ruling and subduing, wielding authority over our kids in a way that isn't harsh or demeaning. And, and man, that, it just hit me. Now, I, I get to sit through these services twice, and so sometimes this happens, right? The first time you hear it, it's like, oh, man, maybe that's, maybe God is speaking to me. But then if you hear it a second time, it's like, oh, and the second time, it really, really hits you. And, and I felt like that service, uh, both times, I was just so convicted. And I won't get into all the details, but I felt like God just wanted me to stop and, and really sit with that idea. And so for the next few days, the next week, I felt like I was just kind of mourning just sitting with and reflecting on and feeling a sense of sorrow over my 
uh, imperfection, my brokenness as a dad. And, and, and I felt like God wanted to meet me there uh, and, and help me to understand the cost of this. And not in a way that was like, hey, you're bad and you should feel bad. You know, this, you're horrible. But instead, it was like, hey, look. Look at what this is costing. Like, he would bring to mind, like, like the image of, like, the look on Gray's face when maybe I didn't give him the attention that he needed that day. Or a, a moment when, you know, I'd been really short or, or curt with Kaya when she needed something and I was tired. And I, and I began to think about and process through all the ways that this would affect them, that it was affecting them in that moment about how they understood who God was how they understood the idea of love and grace and acceptance, how this was helping them or not helping them to become people who uh, would be able to love others and bear God's image to others. And I'll be honest, this wasn't a fun process, but it was just kind of three or four days of just feeling this weight. Every time I would stop, every time I would sit with God, every time I'd be out for a run, this heaviness. And it wasn't just about recognizing sin, like, oh, hey, I need to do better as a dad, but to feel sorrow over it and to mourn with God. And this is the important thing about it is that mourning and repentance, it it takes time. We have to slow down. We have to stop and really come to this place where we look at our sin and we say, man, this is, this hurts Maybe it's not obvious, maybe it doesn't come to mind right away, but when I think about it, when I think about its effects, when I think about what it's doing to me and to others, this hurts. I hate sin. I hate what it does to me. I hate what it does to my family. I hate what it does in the world around me. I hate seeing sins like mine having an effect in the world around us. And when we do this, this practice does so many things for us. First, I think mourning produces humility. It helps us to take ownership over our sin, to recognize that we don't have it all figured out and to recognize we need help. Mourning turns us towards God, towards genuine repentance, right? Like this idea of repentance, of of turning towards God, it's just not begrudging obedience, like, okay, God, I'll do what you say. It's I want to follow you. I want to do things your way and to sit with sin and to mourn and to recognize this sucks. I hate this. God, help me to go where you want me to go because I know it's better. Genuine repentance comes from recognizing the weight and the cost of sin. And I think most importantly, as Jesus himself said, mourning brings comfort. See, when we go there, when we wrestle with sin, when we feel its effects, when we feel that sorrow, the greater mourning we experience, the greater the grace that God meets us with. And I do think that many of us are missing out on the kind of deep forgiveness that comes with real mourning, that comes from this kind of sorrow over sin, where God meets us and he says, yeah, I'm with you, I see this. And in spite of all your sinfulness, in spite of all this mess that your sin has brought, in spite of all the hurt that it's caused, I still love you. I still forgive you. And what's even better is that I want to redeem this in your life. And I want you to come with me and help me to do that.
and we'll do it together. This is the process of dealing with sin that ultimately brings hope and grace and life and change. And so this morning, as we kind of reflect on this challenging passage, my hope is that as we went through Genesis 3, that you were already beginning to think about ways that sin affects you. Without me having to give a million different examples, we all know, we all feel that. And so my challenge for you this morning is not to turn away from it, not to gloss over it, not to do a quick, I'm sorry, God, let's move on, let me get to something better, but to sit with it. Maybe this morning, just for 10 minutes, or maybe for the next couple of days or next couple of weeks, but just to practice this idea of, of real, genuine mourning. And I do think that ultimately what happens is that this will turn you towards Jesus and help you to experience his grace and forgiveness. And that's my prayer for us today. So why don't we uh, pray together as we close.